Ronaldo! Oh my goodness! You don't save those! Out of this world! Messi! 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 3 nothing. Landon Donovan, there are things on here for the USA. Can they do it here? Cross, and Dempsey is denied again! And Donovan has scored! Oh, can you believe this? Go, go, USA! Certainly through! Oh, it's incredible! You could not write a script like this! For the fourth time, the United States of America are crowned champions of the world. From the international stage to right here at home, this is FUVFC, talking all things soccer on WFUV Sports. What is up, everybody? We are down to two. France, Argentina, Sunday morning, 10 o'clock Eastern. The World Cup final will commence. But before we get into that thriller, the thriller's maybe snoozers that were the quarterfinal matchups just because this World Cup has provided us with so many great games, you know, to see two clean sheets in each game respectively. Kind of a bummer, but we also have some domestic stuff to get into, the passing of a legend. The U.S. can't stay out of the world soccer headlines. Before we dive into all of that, James Burley, Gino Alva joining me, Keenan Troy in studio. Gentlemen, how are we? Uh, I'm doing very, very well. I mean, we got a lot to be excited about, a lot to get through, as you just alluded to. Uh, it's going to be another good episode of, FU, of FUVFC uh, and our last one before the holiday season So, and our last one before the World Cup finishes. So let's get right into it. Yeah, it's been a long World Cup, a lot of games to be played, especially considered I think it's probably one of the best World Cups we've seen in a long, long time. So to see it finally finishing this Sunday, it's definitely, definitely going to be a treat for us this holiday season. Well, let's remove ourselves from everything that's coming up in the World Cup, uh, you know, that final between Argentina and France, to talk about an American journalist whom we lost at this World Cup within the last week, Grant Wall. It is announced that he died of an aneurysm last week in Qatar. Um, He tweeted out on December 5th that he had worked himself, you know, raggedly to the point where his body just seemingly shut down. He suffered an aneurysm and died while in Qatar last week. Um, For those of us who don't know Grant Wall, he was considered the American soccer guru in terms of reporting on, you know, the United States soccer, especially throughout its growth in the early 2000s to its present day. Uh, A reporter who was respected by everyone within the United States Soccer Federation, you know, even on the international level, guys recognized him. You know, from across you know many nations, as the one who's doing the most to grow the sport domestically in the states, worked for Sports Illustrated for twenty plus years. You know, once maybe as a joke, but quasi seriously in twenty ten, said that he might consider candidacy to become FIFA president. Eventually, never amounted to anything. But you know, still, that's how big his impact was to think that he could have a shot to, you know, even secure a federation's acknowledgement that, you know, he would be a good voice of reason within the world game. A tragic loss for U.S. soccer as well as for the sports journalism world because he did so much besides just soccer. You know, in 2002, he produced the 
you know, cover article for Sports Illustrated um, that detailed LeBron James is the chosen one. You know, this is maybe some say the piece that put LeBron on the national perspective, whereas before he was seen as this phenom in maybe the greater Midwest or, you know, those who barely followed high school basketball, but Grant Wall's piece made LeBron the cult of personality figure that he was at age 18 coming out of St. Patrick's, so, uh, St. Mary's, excuse me. So I, I think that while we mourn Grant Wall, we also have to recognize what a incredible life he led and how much he did for the game of soccer domestically because I think we can credit a lot of the national publicity and you know the way the game has grown in term grown excuse me in terms of the culture that surrounds it to Grant Wall's you know dedication in journalism yeah and I think just outside of his trailblazing in U.S. soccer journalism because that's let's face it he he's been around the entire time that the U.S. soccer has been you know, somewhat relevant. He covered 11 World Cups, um, both men's and women's, has been just a, an amazing ambassador for the game in this country. And, you know, as three aspiring soccer journalists sitting in a room together, we have to tip our cap to what he brought before us. And he opened the door for a lot of guys like us. So we, for that, we have to be thankful. And it also must be said that the outpouring of good messages coming from other journalists within soccer, outside of soccer, and just voices that people who knew him it's it says a lot about the man he was and the life he led so it's just a tragic loss at such a young age and you know his dedication to to human rights i mean just about every day when he was in qatar he would also publish something about human rights transgressions that you know we we were all too familiar with now talking about the qatar world cup and including you know being denied from a game because he wore a gay pride t-shirt in support of his brother, and while that brought a lot of controversy about the cause of his death, even though it's now been determined that it was an aneurysm and no amount of CPR could have saved him, it, it, just because it's such a tragedy, I think we, we all have, um, should, all should be, uh, you know, thankful for what he has provided for uh, the three of us specifically and so many others like us, but just in general, it's just a terrible loss for everyone. Yeah, I mean, it was def definitely a devastating news to to know about you know Grant Wall's passing unfortunately it was during the World Cup but uh I mean you guys said it all you know we're aspiring soccer journalists uh you know we're trying to do what he's doing and his you know mission from day one was to be a part of the sport of soccer especially he saw all of the U.S. men's national team past and present legends uh to see his uh, death become you know a huge part of this World Cup and it's obviously gonna be an ongoing conversation you know f forever but uh, I think, you know, to say, to say it best, you know, he is definitely a man, a soccer fan, and he died doing what he, what he loved. Um, there's no, you know, we can talk about, you know, the, the gay pride stuff and, you know, what, you know, he was wearing the shirt. He was denied entry to a soccer match. Uh, but at the end of the day, you know, he's a, he's a man, he's a journalist, he's, he's a brother, and, you know, we got to do uh, what we have to do in, in the way of life. Yeah, and I think, you know, my final point about Wall is that, whether it be the pride flag shirt that he wore, the condemnation of the you know migrant workers' conditions in Qatar, or even you know really gruelingly questioning Greg Berhalter throughout the World Cup cycle, I think we can look at Grant Wall from a, a journalistic standpoint as 
an idol for those of us who want to pursue this as a career, as someone who, you know, stays true to who they are no matter the context. And, you know, when he had passed, there were rumors of false play, foul play, excuse me, which have been proven to be false, thankfully. But, you know, the reason that those are even relevant is because of the character Grant Wall has and willing to, you know, even as a guest within the country of Qatar who is hosting the World Cup, willing to, you know, not sacrifice his beliefs and still made, let it be known that he is using his platform for good. So for the memory of Grant Wall, we have to say thank you. And, you know, he is someone that us in this room, but I think I can say broadly for everyone at WFUV here that, you know, he's an inspirational figure on how to do things the right way and lead through your character. That being said, we do have a ton more stuff on this show to get into. And last week we recorded a clip may or may not have gotten clicks online, not a big <laughs> deal, about Burhalter in or out. James, you and I, and Nick Guzman, who I'm covering for today because he's lazy. Um, this is true. Said that we were Burhalter in, that he had won the right to the job following, you know, however we rank this performance at Qatar, a success, I think a lot of American soccer fans are saying. And then last week, and still rippling into this week, Greg goes and shoots himself in the foot. He attends a leadership conference in New York. Full quotes are available online, but you know the introductory quote was, in this last World Cup, we had a player that was clearly not meeting expectations on and off the field. One of 26 players, so it stood out. As a staff, we sat together for hours deliberating what we were going to do with this player. He, of course, is speaking of Giovanni Reina. There were rumors you know, circling about to what extent this deliberation actually occurred. There was, Burhalter himself said we were considering putting him on a plane home. There were rumors of Giovanni Reyna's dad and mother being emotionally upset. Uh, Mr. Reyna is a friend of Greg Burhalter's. They were national team members for this United States program back in the early 2000s, late 90s. There's a ton of drama surrounding this, but... It, it to me in Giovanni Reina's Instagram post, which was you know a marathon of a caption to get through, but the gist was that he was told before Wales that he would be playing a small role within this American World Cup side, which we can get into later. He was Greg cited it as well as other U.S. you know media outlets saying that his effort within the friendly before the Wales game two days before was not up to scratch. And it seems like if you try and follow the timeline, Reyna was told at some point prior to that friendly, maybe it was in U.S. camp or it was right before camp started arriving in Doha, that he would not be a contributing factor to this team. It obviously weighed on Reyna, and he admitted that he may have handled it a little childishly. Hercules Gomez, who I'm on the fence about if I like him or not, brought up a good point saying he's 20 years old. You know, an emotional response is what you're going to get from a 20-year-old. And, you know, everyone that's being so hard on him needs to understand that or even reflect. Like, if I was judged for who I am right now, you know, in the broad scale of life, what would people think about me? Which is true that Giovanni Reina is young. But now it's gotten to the point, and I think the real decisiveness in making these 
comments and this grievance made public, you know, the, the, the I say decisiveness, I meant divisiveness, is that now Greg Berhalter, in my opinion, has lost the locker room. You know, whether you want to look at the players whom, you know, the young nucleus of this team all liked Gio's Instagram post, I don't think that's indicative of much. But from a player perspective, I think it'd be you'd be wrong to ever trust Greg Berhalter again because of him making these grievances made, known to the public. Because he said it, and Giovanni Reyna references this in his Instagram post, that it's going to stay in-house. That anything that would happen, they would take care of it as a staff. And now Greg brings it to the public. It obviously gets spread around like wildfire throughout U.S. soccer news. And so it appears to me now that although I was Burhalter in even last week, I think he has run his course because I, I just I don't think this is an action that can ever be reconciled with the guys in that locker room. Unfortunately, I, I'm, I agree in the sense that this is a bad way for Greg to have ended his U.S. tenure. It's, it's just such an ugly situation. And I think that this is going to be the end because it's so ugly. And that no one wants it to end this way, whether or not you are a big fan of Greg Berhalter or not. I'm, I mean, we've all had our fair share of criticisms on him here, and this is no, no one wins in this situation, and that's that's the bottom line, really. I mean, Gio Reyna was apparently not putting in enough effort, and he apologized to his teammates, and that probably should have been the end of it, you know. So for Greg to have come out and, and made those comments, even though he was uh, adamant about it being off the record. You you can't be the U.S. national team coach and talk about sending home your most talented player to a leadership conference and then expecting it not to get out. It probably would have gotten out anyway. I know, I think some journalists like Paul Tenorio of The Athletic said that they were going to publish a story, but once, but once the Greg Berhalter comments came out before they anticipated, they had to run the story immediately. So that's why it blew up like a supernova just like that. Um, with that said, though, I, I mean... The fact that several players had to say to Gio Reyna that your level of, of effort is not enough is concerning. The fact that it's his teammates coming out and saying that. What, what is also concerning is that how much lies spread quickly with this, how there was like a 13 to 12 player vote that just never happened. That was a lie. Um, but Greg, Greg dealt with it, I think at the time, probably during the World Cup, probably dealt with it correctly. I don't know if we can read too much into him saying that Gio is going to have a limited role prior to the World Cup starting because those are Gio's words and not Greg. Maybe he just said, you're not going to start this game. And we're, we're, we're interpreting limited role in the worst way possible. Or maybe me saying that is I'm interpreting it in the best way possible. I don't know. Because for me, if Gio Reyna is healthy, it doesn't make sense that you would give him a very limited role in the team. And I think for even though we've been critical of Greg's lineup selections, even he is smarter than that. I think that makes a lot of sense um, and it's not like Greg's been uh, afraid of talking about players who uh, go against team policy before. When Weston McKenney allowed people into the COVID, into their bubble during World Cup qualifying, he set out a couple games for it, and it was made public. The fact that this happened at a World Cup, though, and it didn't come out, and then it immediately came out when the World Cup was over, it it's it's it seems just way worse. How it's like almost there's a backstabbing uh, quality to this that. We haven't seen when Bearhalter dealt with with this situation with McKenney, who you know another young player grew up from it and um, became a better player and has not had to deal with these situations again. He dealt with a similar situation at his club. Reports in Dortmund coming out about Gio Reyna have highlighted him as 
sometimes having attitude issues, but for the most part, nothing nothing nearly as bad as this. So it's just just an absolute disaster on all fronts. No one looks good from it, and it's only cr- created a more divisive culture between the national team and between pundits and fans alike, and we all know that already existed. And, and not to mention, you talked about Greg Berhalter and Claudia Reyna being national team teammates. They grew up in New Jersey together, played high school soccer together, so there is a big relationship there that already existed that has got to have been destroyed. I, I don't see a way Greg Berhalter continues with this group after this. It just it just wouldn't be possible. Um, even if 25 out of 26 guys like him, he has now broken a level of trust that needs to be there between a player and a manager, especially a young player, that you should really be protecting more than anything, even if he makes mistakes as bad as he made. Because he's a young guy and he's Honestly, I don't want to give anybody special treatment because they're so talented, but Gio Reyna is remarkably talented. So the fact that he was the one who's kind of got shoved under the bus unfairly after it all uh, went to pass is not good. And um, I, yeah, I, I can't imagine that Greg continues with this group. But if he does, I mean, he's going to have to do some mending. Yeah, I mean, like, I don't know much about the Team USA's team and, you know, the storylines or whatever, but when I hear the words, you know, the coach lost their, you know, team in the locker room, I think that just sums up what's happening in in Team USA's camp. I mean, look, when we talk about the Ronaldo stuff before, you know, how he wanted to play, it's the same situation. I mean, Giorino wants to play. We all know he's talented. Before the World Cup started, we know he was going to be on the roster. We know he was going to be a huge part of this World Cup. We wanted him to play that first game against Wales. Uh, But it it didn't happen. He, I think he, I think he played a couple of minutes uh, with those three games, and especially against uh, in the round of sixteen. But you know, reading his uh, his Instagram caption about him wanting to, he, his feelings got to ahead of him. Uh, it's definitely disappointing to see Giorena act like this, but we also got to see from the coach's perspective. And I think what Coach Berhalter did was, you know, uh, interesting the way to say that he's not playing. He's not going to be a, pin, a pinnacle part of. Of the World Cup, you know, we obviously know uh, there's the average team of this team USA is probably you know young 20, 21 year olds, twenty three year olds, and uh, yeah, I mean, what can you do? I mean, the World Cup ended abruptly for them. Um, it ended uh, with a bad giveaway against uh, uh, Belgium, but you know what can we do about it? I think what Gio Reyna is going to do, I think he's going to focus on uh, Borussia Dortmund right now. Greg Berhalter is going to have to figure out a way for. Gio Reyna to be part of his team in the next uh, World Cup qualifiers and the Gold Cup that's coming up. But, um, you know, this is a player and coach uh, uh, discussion. You know, obviously the media is going to be a part of it. But we're going to have to wait and see if, you know, Bear Halter is going to be part of Team USA for this upcoming Gold Cup and this World Cup qualifiers, you know, that's coming up in the next couple of uh, years. Yeah, and I think what's most frustrating about this is because when I was Burhalter out and then, you know, after the World Cup, realizing that it's probably Burhalter in until this news broke, is what was Greg Burhalter's, you know, what was he championed on? It was the relationships he formed with the team. And I think, you know, whether you want to say it was because of his recruitment that built that, you know, whether it be getting guys like Musa or Dest or Pepe, you know, players with dual nationalities that could go play for other nations and, you know, seemingly buying into what Greg was selling. And we saw it, you know, on display at this World Cup that everyone is seemingly locked in with him and he does a good job commanding this group. For him to turn his back on, you know, one of his youngest players and one of his the brightest stars that this future could have, 
really speaks volumes, I think. I don't want to say about Greg's character because I don't think it's indicative of that, but I think for me it speaks volumes about what he lacks as a coach, and that's he cannot handle personality clashes. You know, we saw it with John Brooks. We saw it with Matt Miazga. Two players which I think as national team fans everyone was willing to do without because they're not going to be the ones that are going to, you know, impact a game in the way that Giovanni Reina could. And those kind of get swept aside. Even when we talked about earlier this year about the 26 getting selected, we had we didn't even mention Miazga's name because we knew that, you know, he had been so far removed. And then Brooks, we were just like, him and Burhalter don't get along and that's end of discussion. So, you know, we saw those personality clashes in the past, which is fine if you can manage them. But I think him and Gio... You know, whether the chicken or the egg came first, whether his performance dropped and he was then told he was going to have a lesser role, maybe he didn't come into camp 100% fit, um, despite, you know, him saying that he was 100% to go, ready to go, maybe, you know, that compounded with him not giving 100% in training led Greg to believe that there was something holding him back, and that's why Greg told him he's not going to have that big of a role. I don't know. We don't have that information. But... You know, watching Giovanni Reyna's reaction from my perspective, seeing that dip in performance, you know, having players come after him and tell him to step up and there's still this clash, I think that's where Greg was exposed, you know, reading the reports of being a step below what is required for what is becoming a really talented United States men's national team. But a men's national team that, you know, moving forward, you are going to have to deal with egos. Because these young stars' egos are only going to get bigger. And so now the question for me is, and why I think it's time to for Greg to go, and why this is indicative of the fact that it's time for Greg to go, is he seemingly cannot manage guys that have conflicting ideas against him. And is that maybe why, you know, Jordan Fox left out or Pepe's left out? And Jesus Ferrer is in because Jesus Ferrer is a Burrowhalter guy through and through, maybe. But now it's very clear to me that it we want Giovanni Reina to be a prominent figure for U.S. soccer. Greg Burrowhalter has to go, and I wish that wasn't the case, but I just don't think the way this unfolded, it's reconcilable any other way. And to think that it comes down to potentially Greg, you know, living and dying off the idea, well, if this interview's off the record, I'm going to go into depth about a situation that happened with a player, even if I don't mean for it to come out and even if I don't want to use uh, that person's name. Like, he had to have known that was going to come out. Like, it, it's it, the fact that this is what separates him from a second stint with this national team is what bothers me about the whole situation because, you know, we, could t- we have and talked about his shortcomings tactically, which there are many. And we have talked about his ability to get to seemingly get the group to get up and play, which is which is not necessarily an easy thing to do because we saw time and time again uninspired performances from this national team. And we didn't see that when it mattered most, you know, in big World Cup qualifying games and in the World Cup. But now to to establish that it's going to be difficult to trust him. There's no way he can continue with this group, especially even if he's like totally in the right here and he was totally right to have told Giorena that he's going to have a limited role. Like, we weren't there. We don't know this. 
Maybe Gio was acting like a, a spoiled brat and deserved what happened, but he definitely didn't deserve it coming out and and it, it, it creating this huge rift within the national team where, I'll say it again, you have to be able to protect your players if you're the national team coach, especially your younger, more vulnerable to the media, talented players who play in Europe like Gio Reyna. And, and, and that's why I think it, it's good that you brought up guys like Brooks and Miazga where in the sense of Brooks, that had a lot of media controversy because he plays in Europe and Miazga, not as big a name. It still brought controversy, but not nearly as much. So I, I think that this 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 is this is goodbye and and it's just it's it's so disappointing that it, it it's become because of not of a soccer decision, but because of a a player management position and it's and this is the guy who's supposed to be good at player management and we've seen him be good at player management for a long time the only point i wanted to add on to that really quickly was that you saw multiple international coaches fall on the sword for their programs this year after you know world cup exits where they think they should have stuck around van hall did it you know, mm, Martinez. Martinez did it. Chichi. Chichi. So it it comes down to you know maybe that's the difference and experience Greg Berhalter needs as a coach of you know not being you know understanding that as a coach whether I think I'm right or I don't my job is as you said and rightfully so is to is to protect the players and it's to fall on the sword so that the culture stays intact, that I can be the problem, so that everything else appears, even if it's not, appears okay. And I, I think he tried really hard to do that during the World Cup. You well, might... I don't know with all the illness reports. So. See, so like people were coming out and saying, why is Bearhalter lying about Gio Reyna's fitness ahead of the World Cup game? And I think that's him. it was him trying to protect him, perhaps, from what had happened in camp and, you know, the rift that that was caused. But, but to go and immediately, like, just diminish that progress once the world cup's over it's a terrible look for everyone yeah i mean i was gonna ask you guys looking now we're talking about burn halter and geo looking now in the future for team usa the next competition is nations league and then the gold cup if burn halter were to stay will geo be a part of that team you know in those two competitions he's got to be i mean yeah i I think that's at least one of the competitions i think probably the nations league he will be invited Will he come to play? I think he has to. I think that's, you know, whether he wants to or not, that's the only way this narrative doesn't get out of hand. But, I mean, Burhalter's contract is up for renewal. I don't know when we can anticipate um, a decision on that. I would be su- wouldn't be surprised if, giving, given that all this has come out, we go with an interim head coach for a little bit while they still, you know, the U.S. Soccer Federation still evaluates if Greg is the guy or not. But... For me right now, the only way that this doesn't snowball and, you know, relinquish all the, you know, progress that this group has made is if Greg is out. Because if he stays, there are very quickly going to be lines drawn in the sand between guys that like Greg and guys that don't. Guys who side with Gio and guys who don't. And they're going to be way more uh, divisive than the lines that have already been drawn. Right. Because there are some people in and around the national team who really hate him. And to go back to your question, Gino... If he gets called back into camp and Greg Greg is still the coach, I think the one thing that Gio has learned from all of this is put your head down and just play. And I think he would accept a call up into camp and he would put his head down and play. And you know, and that's just part of learning and growing up. And I think that's 
that's that's the only silver lining from this situation right now is that this is a growth opportunity for Geo. And if anything, like Greg Berhalter is 49 years old. Yeah, he needs to learn more and evolve as a coach. But now if he's going into his second stint, you would hope that he's already learned these things. So at the tail end of his first cycle to be to be learning in a way that a 20 year old should be learning is not is concerning and and it just goes back to that trust and and protecting the players so it i cannot see a world in which the u.s soccer federation doesn't just cut their losses and and at least look to an interim coach and i think that's probably what's going to happen yeah and my my last question for us is before we move on to teams that are actually playing soccer and this away from the soap opera the, that, the drama yeah that is happening with the u.s is what's next for greg burhalter because we saw him give it a go with the Columbus crew, and then we saw him move to Europe, unsuccessful, and now you know gets a job as the men's national team coach, a job in which his brother helped him get. If you understand that his brother does work for the U.S. Soccer Federation, following all the you know missing 2018, the scramble, his brother was really heavy in pushing for Greg to get a job. Not to say that he hasn't done a good job, or that you know since being appointed manager, he hasn't you know, met the expectations that were put in front of him. What's next for Greg Berhalter, though? And I just I just wonder, because of the way this blew up in terms of U.S. soccer, and let's be honest, he's not qualified to go coach in a lot of European leagues, where does he go from here? Does he retreat into U.S. Soccer Federation and just, you know, work behind the scenes, kind of still work with the national team, but not in a coaching way, maybe in, I don't know, uh developmental phase you know for the youth because of how seemingly good he is you know we saw it with the recruitment and how invested he is in growing the U.S. soccer program I think he'd be an asset to lose you know permanently from this but yeah I don't see him going to if he continues coaching I don't know where because I think you know yes you could bring him into an MLS side for example but I don't think he can escape these you know true allegations about his character outing his players no and for, for what it's worth there have been rumblings that some european sides are interested in him I, I don't know what level of europe that would entail i mean the sixth division in england i'm saying like yeah he's probably getting like around the championship level maybe maybe a dutch team maybe belgium you know i think that's probably probably the level that he would be at if he were to coach in europe i don't think he honestly should coach an MLS because his style of play that he tries to take advantage of is so I think it's like in a way above MLS in the sense that he would need more talented players for it to be successful because it was largely average when during his time in Columbus I mean like he was a playoff was a playoff team regularly during his time in Columbus but they and they played attractive style in the way uh, Greg had wanted to but they were never good enough to to win hardware and you know two years after he's gone to coach the national team they bring home mls cup so i i don't think there's a future for him in, in mls i mean i could be wrong i think he'll, he'll end up coaching in europe if he doesn't re-up with the u.s probably for a lower level team higher than the level of hamarby in in, in uh, sweden and i think but certainly below the level of a of a top five league for sure um I think I think we'll I think we'll see him coaching though continue. I I do think it would be a loss for U.S. soccer in general if um if he is to go just because like you said recruiting and and with the administrative side of the game like he has proven to be an asset and he got he looked tactically good enough at the World Cup to to get some attention. So I think we'll see him you know somewhere in Europe. But 
nothing nothing incredibly big. His job is definitely in the air after this whole Geo thing. I thought personally he was going to stay uh, with the national team. Now, what's so interesting about the next World Cup is that it is held in the United States, Mexico, and Canada. So there isn't a competitive and focused side when it comes to qualifying. So is is that a great chance to call up you know an, another set of young guys to the team and prepare them for a World Cup that's coming, you know, in the host country? I I think. That, you know, the U.S. doesn't need to qualify for this World Cup, which is a blessing on a lot of fronts. A, I think it gives U.S. Soccer Federation more flexibility in terms of getting a manager that they don't need to, you know, have a manager and have him be competitive within two and a half years for qualification to kick off. And also, it doesn't create, you know, so much animosity in terms of CONCACAF qualifiers of, you know, who's playing where and, you know, why aren't we calling in certain guys? I feel like the U.S. is in a really fortunate position for 2026, you know, even with the controversy surrounding Greg that, you know, World Cup qualifying doesn't mean anything to them besides getting your best 11 and getting a manager that, you know, facilitates that best 11 to the best of their abilities. And for for what it's worth, I mean, this is why you talk about falling on your sword if you're Greg – this is why I think that even if he is backs against the wall, it's going to take something major for him to to step down from the role and to decide, no, I don't want to be the U.S. national team manager again because who in their right mind would decline the opportunity to manage your national team on home soil for a World Cup? I mean, it's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity that, you know, no one should take lightly, and I don't think U.S. soccer should take it lightly, so I think they should really consider... Um, the value that Greg will have going forward versus other potential candidates. And, you know, we talked last week about the candidates, the, the names that we hear get thrown out by the media and by Twitter. Or none of those are real. You know, we're not going to have Zidane and Xavi uh, team up to manage the U.S. national team. They just won't do it. Um, and gosh, I wonder why. Is it because maybe we're not as good as we think we are? Perhaps that's the reason. But also because international management is such a different thing from club management in general that you really need to be prepared in such a different way. So uh, the the fact that this is all happening so quickly is not good for anybody. Like I said, so I mean we'll we'll see moving forward. I I don't I can't I can't imagine Greg decides willingly to step away from this. If if he's gone, it's going to have to be the federation stepping in. Well, there are still teams playing in this 2022 World Cup. Not name the United States, even though they're not playing. They might as well be with all the drama surrounding them. We had two semifinals this week, seeing now France play Argentina on Sunday for the World Cup trophy. France getting it done yesterday against the Cinderella of the tournament. Morocco, that was a 2-0 finish. And then Messi and Argentina cruised to a 3-1, 3-0 triumph over Croatia. Revenge for Argentina because they did lose 3 nothing. Funny enough, same scoreline in 2018, just completely flipped with completely different implications on the result. I'm going to start off hot and say that wasn't a penalty. Really? And, and it completely changes the way that match is played because Croatia, very much like Morocco who conceded early but then showed a lot of character in the way they kept pressing forward, Croatia, as we saw throughout, you know, their run in 2018 and their run this year, they've won one game in knockout football that didn't go to uh, 
extra time or penalties. So one game out of eight. So it tells you a lot that that team is a team that's just going to grind and grind and grind and try and get a result late. And that penalty early, you know, completely flips the script on them, and that's not a penalty. I thought it was questionable. I'm not ready to say fully it wasn't a penalty because I do think, I while I do think those don't usually get called as penalties, I think it's possible that Alvarez could have gotten to the ball if he didn't get bodied. I think it's possible. That's why I'm not ready. Hey, I, it's a soft call. Don't get me wrong. But I'm not ready to say it wasn't a penalty. What I will say is that Vardiol's handball in the penalty in should, the penalty, that should have been a well, penalty. Well, that was after the but that was bad. That was already after, so, you know, live... It's a you get what you get one you give one doesn't matter in the end I I think I think it ju- does change the game though I think that's an important po- point you brought up even so I still think Argentina's quality um, we saw a performance from Argentina that we probably all thought except for you all thought we were going to see from Brazil because we all were I mean I guess we fell into that trap that everybody does every World Cup you think Brazil is is uh, going to go to the final and they they dominate their way through the group stage. Uh, dominate their way through the round of 16 and then find a roadblock in the quarterfinals or semis and that's what happened this time and that roadblock was Croatia and Croatia found themselves playing against Lionel Messi and that that doesn't usually work so I I think each of those three goals besides that first penalty um, I think that that Julian Alvarez run was spectacular I don't know how they didn't win the ball off of him I don't know how he kept it on his foot ended up being a good finish and that Messi run just dicing up Vardiol who I just called out for conceding a penalty that wasn't given but he has been probably the best defender in the entire World Cup so the fact that Messi was able to put him on skates before finding Alvarez for the tap-in to make it three was was just spectacular and Argentina a team that most people picked to go to the final before it started and they've proved with the exception of that Saudi Arabia game when they opened it up they've proven everyone wrong they've kind of looked a lot like Spain did in 2010 who lost their opening match at the World Cup and went on to win it so I think for Argentina, they've got a lot to be excited about, obviously not only because they're in the World Cup final and because there's a history in which a team wins the World Cup after losing their first game, but because of the way that they've won these matches in Croatia, against Croatia, excuse me, they didn't have most of the possession, but even then dominated the pace of that play, and, and really it never looked like Croatia were going to win. Even 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 if you take that penalty away, I don't know if that changes. So, uh, there I, think it, it, I think it 100% changes it. Look how many numbers... So. Alvarez's first goal was directly off a Croatia corner. You think they commit that many men forward? They had two guys behind the ball. Do you think they commit, you know, probably not. Not eight out of field players into the box if they're not trying to, you know, take advantage of a set piece? The thing is though, that was that was 1v4. I mean, I, that that goal didn't happen because they had too many numbers up. That goal happened cuz Julian Alvarez decided to, that he wasn't going to lose the ball. I mean, that that's why that's why in this in this case specifically where I, I would say like an early penalty to Brazil probably would have they would have closed the game out. I think Argentina even without that would have closed the game out because of the, all the weapons that they that they had and showed were just far superior to Croatia's best and and in a way that Brazil couldn't have done that, which shocked a lot of us because of how impressive they looked throughout the group. So that that's why for me I I definitely understand what you're saying, but I think. In this case specifically, Argentina just had too much going right for them where even if they didn't get that that first penalty, that they still probably would have controlled the pace of the game. I'm not saying they would have scored two more goals in the fashion that they did. I still think they probably would have won, though. 
And I think that's why a lot of Argentina fans should be excited going into the final because, I mean, with the exception of 2014 when Messi was in his prime and and just just went on God mode essentially every game, this has been a better improvement. And Emmy Martinez, we keep going back to him, in goal has been instrumental. What is concerning, though, is in the round of 16 and quarterfinals games, Argentina let their opponents come back into the game. They're not if they let France if they go up against France and let France come back into the game, that game's gonna be gone and they will lose. So the fact that they, you know, took their foot off the gas against Australia and the Netherlands and it almost came back to haunt them is is a cause for concern. But the way that they controlled the game against Croatia is is a beacon of hope for the final. I just find it fascinating how Argentina managed to like get a goal. They're just so lucky this tournament. I mean, when we talk about Australia, you know, Australia uh, went to a playoff round to qualify for the yeah. World Cup, and they scored one goal against the Copa America champions and Argentina. Uh, and then we talk about the Netherlands match when you said, you know, they let Netherlands get back in the last couple of minutes. Uh, it's just interesting to see how Argentina came from a 2014 World Cup final to losing various Copa America finals to Messi at one point, left the national team came back, said he was going to do anything he can to make sure Argentina wins the World Cup. Now, when we talk about, you know, the beginning of the World Cup, yes, they lose to Saudi Arabia. You know, everybody said, you know, they were going to, they weren't ready, they were cocky because they were coming in because they won the Copa America. Uh, but they proved everyone wrong that, you know, they woke up and they came back and they somehow managed to find a way to win the game and qualify to the next uh, round. Now they're in the final against France, who I think France could be the first team to win back-to-back World Cup titles, if I'm not mistaken. Since, Brazil, since Brazil. Since Brazil, like back in the 50s. So how I saw, how I see Argentina these past couple of years, uh, they're finally proving people wrong that, you know, after all those finals they've lost against Chile, against Germany, uh, they're ready to finally win this game. I'm glad you brought up that statistic of back-to-back winners, which has not happened since Brazil in 58-62. Right. Um, but it's the first time in our lifetimes that we've seen um, a back-to-back finalists. Just just that hasn't happened since 98-02 with France and Brazil. And, I mean, Keenan, you were alive for the 02 World Cup, but I don't think you remember it very much. I don't no, think definitely so. not. <laughs> so I, I just that's that's there's a lot to be said. I was a like a uh, an adamant believer in the in the curse of the champions, and you know, 2010, 2014, and 2018, Italy, Spain, and Germany all getting grouped. For France to have gone to the final in 2018, won it, and now be back at the final in 2022 is actually remarkable, and it, they're not going to get enough credit for doing that. Right, and I I don't think I expected France to be back in the final. I mean, they lost Pogba, they, they lost Conte. There was various Benzema. injuries, Benzema. That's the Ballon d'Or winner. And he could play. 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 And, you know, (laughs) Deschamps decided to not let Kareem play. But they're back in a World Cup final. Mbappe could win two World Cups by age 23. Uh, And I think that's unbelievable. And what's so, I think, romantic is a great word to say is that Messi plays in the country of France. He plays in PSG. So what I think, let's say Argentina loses the final. Will he go back to Barcelona? Because he can't be in the country where he lost. Can, Can they afford him? They definitely can afford him. They definitely they got the Spotify him. sponsorship. They can afford it now. They definitely can. Uh, but it's <laughs> they just... got the Drake custom kit <laughs> for sure. And I think because uh, you know I don't want Argentina to win this World Cup because I've just been a long time supporter of Ronaldo for a long time, and just to see Messi lift up the World Cup definitely ends debates that's been spanning from 
when I was I a think kid. the debate's been over for, for a long time already, Gino. I'm sorry. I know. It's going to happen. And, uh, you know, whatever happens this Sunday, you know, it's definitely going to be a historic World Cup final. I mean, it, it already is, but to see in our lifetime back-to-back world champions, a France could be an eight-year champion going into USA in 2026 with the World Cup. Uh, it's definitely going to be a insane final this Sunday. Well, Argentina does have to beat the French. And, you know, James talked about it, the curse of the champions for the World Cups that we can remember because I couldn't even remember 06 because I was, you know, still only five years old and the memory doesn't go back that far. We've always seen champions getting grouped. So France coming in, you know, drawing a relatively light group, might be a possibility that they get knocked out, was unlikely. And then their road to the final has been, you know, easy-ish. You know, they had that big game against England, which Harry Kane, kudos to you, Pat, for skying the pen. (laughs) Absolute, absolute class from the Tottenham man. You can always count on him to, you know, bottle the big moments. It spurs things, you know. Yeah. spurs things. Um, But playing Morocco yesterday on Wednesday – and if you would have told me that Morocco was going to possess as much as they did and have France pinned in their own half as much as they did, I would have told you you were delusional. Teo Hernandez gets the early goal for the French. And, you know, I was kind of expecting, I'm not going to lie, a little bit of what we saw in Argentina-Croatia, which is one early goal, even though, you know, the fifth minute is certainly earlier than Messi's 30th minute penalty, but one goal followed by another you know, the way that France started off that game, you certainly thought they might have it, but Morocco held their own. You know, it was the Morocco team we expected despite conceding early, and that's, you know, as much as I hate Alexi Lalas, and I really do, he did mention in the pre-match, you know, build-up that Morocco's only conceded once at the World Cup and has never trailed, so could they play from behind? And they played their same style from behind, had a couple, you know, good opportunities, especially going into halftime. And then, you know, the bicycle kick that hits the post. And then, you know, even if you want to say Giroud misses a sitter. It was a back-and-forth game in which, you know, everyone said Morocco is Cinderella and that eventually the ball, uh, the carriage is going to turn into a pumpkin, and it did. But I don't think that they have any reason to hang their head in shame because the performance they rolled out against the world champions who look to go back-to-back on Sunday, you know, that's about as tough as you can play that French side. Eventually, a late goal from... Okay, here comes me butchering the name. So, if any of you guys have a better pronunciation of Kolomwani. I think you got it. I think you nailed it. Okay, Kolomwani's, so, yeah. you know, debut goal for the Fran- for himself. <laughs> on his first touch. On his first touch. <laughs> Julian Green stuff. For real. But hopefully a better career than our sweet yeah, prince. Probably, probably better career already. Let's be, let's be <laughs> honest. <I'm laughs> um, but he, you know, scores in the 79th to ice it for the French. You know, the game started to open up, and Mbappe got in increasingly dangerous positions, and then the ball eventually. I mean, Griezmann played incredible in the midfield too, which you know has continued throughout this World Cup to you know add levels to that French attack because Giroud gets it done so well in the midfield, and then. Mbappe and then whoever else they want to play offside him on the opposite wing you know I don't want to say it doesn't matter because it does but he just provides so much of that spark and you know it sets up now the PSG boys playing each other the passing of the guard 
potentially from Messi to Mbappe. You know, everybody's been saying it for the past, you know, four years since Mbappe won the World Cup with France in 2018 that, you know, he's next. Now it's his time to go out and get it. And, you know, in terms of who I'm pulling for, we already know Gino is strictly anti-Argentine on Sunday. I mean, I don't want to say I don't care because it's a World Cup and, you know, having watched most every game that it feels a little bit bogus to say I don't care, but I think that this is such a positive outcome for either country that it doesn't feel like, you know, one is, in my opinion, I prefer one to the other. It's two countries with rich footballing traditions. You know, it's a chance at history to see someone go back-to-back or to see Messi finally win a World Cup. A little bummed that we won't see a new World Cup winner. You know, mm-hmm. 2018 final, Croatia could have been the first country and forever to win a World Cup for the first time. It's going to be either a third star for the French or a third star for the Argentines. I think when it's all said and done, it's going to come down to, you know, who has a bigger game, Messi or Mbappe. And I know that's, you know, cliche to have on the billing, especially because of how potent each team has been. But I think it's going to come down to the which star is going to shine brighter, and I think Messi has that edge just because that Argentine national team, as we've seen at this World Cup, he is their nucleus. They let him walk all over God's green earth until he wants to run. They let him walk out wide right, out wide left, down the center, you know, as a six. It doesn't matter. You know, it's very much Messi's world, and his teammates are just living in it, and I think... Everyone understands, you know, the importance of this moment, the gravitas of this moment for Messi, for Argentina and Argentine football. So I think you have to give Argentina the slight edge on that. The one saving grace as we've seen throughout this World Cup is that France has so much depth and so much quality off the bench that if they're in a position where the game isn't going their speed, Deschamps can play literally 12 through 26 off his bench and, you know, bring a same consistent energy of attack. So I think, you know, as we said before that we've never seen, you know, we never saw Morocco trail. I don't think we've ever in this tournament seen France in danger. And, you know, with the World Cup title on the line, you know, if they're trailing to Argentina, an Argentinian squad that has let teams back in, they're going to have to be as defensively resolute as we've seen them this tournament in order to stop, you know, France from just beating down the door if they're trailing late. Interesting you bring that up too because France at this World Cup has only managed to keep one clean sheet and that is against Morocco. You know, gave up goals to Tunisia, Australia, uh, Poland, Denmark, and England. So and, and of their six games, five of them they've conceded in. So Argentina are playing against a team that has some vulnerability on the back end, even though... I mean, Jules Kunde and Ibu Kunate looked so good against Morocco. And and obviously, hats off to that Moroccan side. They have nothing to be disappointed about. Um, no one thought that they'd get nearly this far. Most people did not think they were going to get out of that group that had both Croatia and Belgium in it. And Spain, yeah. So I, I, you, have to, you have to give credit where credit's due. Morocco did unbelievable things at this World Cup. For France to have beaten England in the way that they did, I think... Um, it's heartbreaking because Harry Kane missed the penalty, but I I still think France probably 
deserve to get through that game, not just because of that, but because of the way that they've been bossing this midfield, uh, which is something that we didn't really see coming. I mean, Chuamani has been best 11 worthy, I think. He's been uh, absolutely fantastic. He showed that against England and Fran- uh, and Morocco, excuse me. Griezmann has not been getting enough credit for how good he's been too. And and you look at Argentina's team, it's it's going to be a big ask for guys like uh, Depaul and McAllister to be able to combat the dynamism of that French midfield. And I, that, that for me is where this game could be opened up by the French. Um, because we know Morocco defended on the flanks really well. Dembele and Mbappe looked really dynamic and really powerful in that game. But Morocco, they, with Hakimi and Masraoui at the at the fullbacks, they did a good job of slowing that down. And it, Mbappe, his pressure didn't really start to mount until the second half really late. And I think France is going to have a, a better time exposing Argentina on the flanks too, whether it's Taliafico or Acuna or Molina Montiel. Argentina like to play in a back five too, so there's not a lot of pl- uh, space out there. But if they can get into the half spaces, that's where guys like Griezmann and Chouamani thrive. And I think they're really going to cause Argentina some problems going down the other way. So I, I think it's, it's a good thing to mention that Argentina's um, been vulnerable too, getting seeding goals to Australia as well. And, you know, that game that they let up against the Netherlands. Uh, but y- the storyline here is, is Messi and Mbappe. I mean, for me, Messi is the goat. He's the greatest of all time. And, f- and on the other hand, Mbappe is the greatest right now. So y- you also have the, the golden boot up for grabs in this final too, which I think is just spectacular. It really is a changing of the guard. You know, Mbappe could have two world cups by the age of 23, and then you think back to Messi when he was in age, his age had, what, three Ballon d'Ors already? Yep. So just the legacy that both of these guys are going to leave behind when their career is done. Um, Messi's, his career uh, finishing is obviously much closer than Mbappe's. But that's why we love this game. And that's why uh, I've been saying for a while how I wanted the best teams to be uh, in this World Cup until the end because it would give us the best storylines and the best football. And I think these are the two best teams at, from this World Cup. Um They've both lost games in the group stage to teams that they are much better than, which I think just adds to the to the lore that this World Cup has had. And you mentioned it, Gina, this World Cup has just been spectacular. Um, it's going to be a great final. I do want to see Argentina win. I think both of these teams have a lot um, that they can already be proud of going reaching this stage, like we like we mentioned. But for if Argentina don't win, I think it would be just devastating for Messi. Um, and if France don't win, you know what? Get back on the horse four years from now because they're going to be fantastic from four years from now. Four years from now, Argentina may not have a Lionel Messi. So I think um, emotionally I am more invested in seeing Argentina win. And maybe I'm biased, but I think they will pull it out. I mean, it's definitely been a pleasure to watch the last World Cup for Messi and Ronaldo and other goats as well. Uh, I think France, for this final, has the team to win it. They've showed... uh, they have some players who won it four years ago, and they have some new players who are playing this World Cup who have performed spectacular. But for Argentina, they weren't met, and they shouldn't have won the World Cup in 2014. This World Cup, they have to win it because they looked like the team that they need to Like They have to win it. It's definitely – they performed better than 2014. They have the players that can do it. They got rid of those you know old players like uh, Higuain and uh, Mercado. They got rid of them. They got brought some young generational talents. So I think Argentina is definitely winning this World Cup, and it's been long overdue for Messi to win a World Cup. He has to win it. He's going to win it. It's it's definitely going to be a really emotional final for, for a lot of uh, Messi fans in Argentina because they've been waiting for 
our World Cup in so long. You know, with Maradona, you know, passing away a couple of uh, years ago, Messi with his situation in from Barca and going to PSG. It's definitely a perfect ending to his story in the national team, and we'll forever remember him as the goat. I think, boys, because next week. After the final, we will all hopefully be home for Christmas. I know I'm out of here tomorrow on Friday. I hope you guys get out of here early too so you can you know, have a little bit longer of a winter break, spend more time with family, all that good stuff. So FUVFC next week will have to happen because we will have to break down that final. But I imagine it's going to be quick because, let's be honest, via Zoom at home, I know all of us are just probably waiting to get off Zoom to go, you know, enjoy time away from school and, you know, recharge the batteries for what should be a good spring. So while the three of us are still here in studio and the energy's still high and we're still, you know, really looking forward to this final on Sunday, looking back on the World Cup that has been, you know, there's a lot of controversy coming in, obviously. You know, when we talk about Grant Wall and we talk about, you know, everything that he brought to light, all that rings true, you know, on the controversy side. And then also the, you know, it being in the winter for the first time ever, you know, how much that weighed on performance. I think, you know, maybe some injury going into the tournament, you know, reflected where this World Cup could have been. But it ultimately, I think, has been a salvageable World Cup. I think, you know, at the end of the day, it is a World Cup and everything kind of gets tuned out while the soccer is being played. All that window dressing being said, what has been our favorite moment from this World Cup? Assuming we don't get, you know, some absolute scenes in the final. I would have to say, I mean, there isn't like a a specific moment, but I think the moments that we were blessed to see were the teams that weren't, the, the teams that actually made it through like Morocco. Like there was a lot of upsets. Those upsets are definitely, you know, my favorite part of the, of this World Cup especially, but, uh, I, I would have to say, if, if I were to pick one, the Saudi Arabia versus Argentina game was definitely a moment that I think we'll remember as, where were we at 5 a.m. in New York, you know? Yeah, I mean, I, I you know, I'm a homer through and through. My favorite moment is Christian Pulisic's goal against Iran. I, that was just the absolute elation of finally seeing the U.S. go ahead, and it, at that moment, it felt like, wow, we're going to get out of the group, and we could go on and do great things. Obviously, it didn't turn out that way in the round of 16, but that moment stood out for me as not only this team might actually be for real, and it was obviously fun because of what it meant in the World Cup, but also seeing Pulisic become that player who gets it done in the big moments like we always knew he could be was was spectacular, a special moment for me personally. I think that obviously there's so many U.S. moments that I loved, you know, individually team wise that you know going back to what we talked about with Greg Berhalter now it's kind of like hard to look back with the same sense of optimism I think my favorite moment from this World Cup though had to be those final minutes of forgive me I don't remember what group it was Ghana Uruguay uh, Portugal and Korea Portugal and Korea group H their last match day, all playing at the same time, just having two TVs on where yeah. a goal for either side could change the table. Could change who gets through. There's a point where, you know, 
essentially all four teams cycled in and out of, you know, making it to the knockouts. And I think for me, you know, and Gino, you hit the nail right on the head. That this World Cup has been full was full of upsets. I think the most parity we've seen at a World Cup, at least in our generation, in terms of every single team, you know, maybe barring a couple, were there on a mission and, you know, had realistic aspirations to get out of the group going into the final match day, which I feel like a lot of times in tournaments past, it's been by match day three, we know the two that are getting out in almost every group, you know, barring maybe one or two. But this one going into match day three, I believe there were three teams that had punched their tickets to the knockout. Everything else was still up to be played for. So that last match day of Portugal versus South Korea, Uruguay versus Ghana, you know, just watching that unfold and, you know, it really encapsulated the drama that is the World Cup and, you know, how much 45 minutes, how much 10 minutes, how much 5 minutes can change, you know, the future of not just your team and the match you're playing, but the emotion that surrounds it, you know, as a country. So I I really think that that match day, match day three for a lot of these groups, you know, marked a new dawn in the you know world's game of football that yeah at the end of the day it might be Argentina and France but it's not going to be the traditional ways we've seen them get there you know if you think back to I would say even 2018's World Cup with the exception of Croatia that was pretty vanilla and then you know even rewinding it to before we were alive it was the world powers the rest of the field now the world power still exists, but the rest of the field's right on their heels and can take them on any given day, which I think for the sport of soccer, and especially, you know, even with our American bias, is where we want to be. I, I, I'm i glad you mentioned those final group stage games because they really did show a lot about this World Cup specifically, and we didn't even get to mention the Japan, Germany, uh, Spain, and Costa Rica group where for a minute and a half, Costa Rica and Japan were the two teams getting through there, which was, that was awesome. But you think back to the World Cups, I think you go back to every World Cup since um, 1978. There's been, what, 26 finalists, and seven of them are just the same countries over and over again. Netherlands, Germany, Argentina, uh, Italy, Brazil, France, and then you've got Croatia went to one, and Spain went to one. So uh, I, I think the fact that we're starting to break the tradition of the same teams over and over again even though in this world cup final it's two of the regulars again the fact that morocco and croatia rounded out the semis it was a was a good thing for football in general i think this world cup showed every team was very strong there wasn't a team that was weak they showed determination they showed passion on the field and no team should go to home you know sad that they left the world cup because you know they played well look at the amount of ups the asian countries the african countries i mean ghana scoring two goals against portugal uh japan and Korea going through. I mean, it's it's definitely a World Cup to remember, but it's definitely it's the last World Cup that has 32 teams. I think the next World yep. Cup will be an expansion of 48 teams. So definitely more matches, definitely more countries be playing in this World Cup. But uh, it's definitely been one of the best World Cups we've seen. I think since 2014. I, I like I, I forgot about 2018 already because <laughs> it was such a good World Cup. You know, the group stage it was definitely a group stage I've never seen before. In the, I think I want to say the last three World Cups that I've been able to watch. So, well, boys, this has been fun. Big thanks to Michael on the sticks. Took us a while to get going today. We're not going (laughs) to speak about it because we're running out of time, but it took us a while to get going, but everything worked out all right. Gino Alva, James Burley, Keenan Troy signing off, saying make sure you set that DVR to 10 a.m. Eastern for Fox. 
on Sunday morning for the World Cup final in Messi's last Argentinian soccer match of his life. Unless they lose. And then he'll be back in four years in a walker. Probably. Yeah. Take care.